With three Grammy nominations and 11 albums to his name, Donnie McCaslin is one of music's most respected saxophone players and band leaders. From mainstream modern to funky fusion to laid-back balmy ballads, that's from a press release. You can tell the fancy wordplay there. Uh, all flavored with his own experimental style, he's incorporated the entire range of sounds that a tenor sax can produce into his repertoire. As the band leader on David Bowie's final album, Black Star, he pushed his boundaries even further further. We'll talk about that a little bit later. We'll talk about Blow, this incredible album that I've been listening to nonstop. Uh, but I want to find out a, a couple of things. You grew up in a musical family. Your father was a musician. Uh, what was that like? Was that a, a, the biggest influence on you, do you think? Well, I, I think it was. Um, my, my parents were divorced, and so I would see my father uh, Every Sunday morning, he would pick me up. I lived in outside of Santa Cruz. He'd pick me up, drive me downtown, and he played at this place at the heart of the Pacific Garden Mall. It was an outdoor cafe, and there was a bandstand, and he'd play from about noon to 6 p.m. So we had this ritual, you know, where I would help him to set up his vibraphone and marimba and electric <laughs> piano. And then when I was quite young, he had just had a chair, and I would just sit on the bandstand and listen for hours and hours. And they played this combination Great American Songbook Jazz, Cal Jader-esque Latin Jazz, and then funky tunes like Mercy, Mercy, Mustang Sally, yeah. Feel Like Making Love. So that was sort of part of my DNA. Santa Cruz was also a major stop for the reggae touring bands. So as a young teenager, I heard, you know, Peter Tosh, Jimmy Cliff, Burning Spear, Mighty Diamonds, Black Uhuru. Wow. Um, and then... Also, you know, uh, it was a there was uh, I was in a salsa band as a teenager, so I was exposed to, to 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 salsa music, and then my high school band director had Duke Ellington's Library of Music, which was kind of unheard of at that point yeah, yeah. in time. Um, so I was playing Duke Ellington's music um, five days a week in high school. So Santa Cruz is a relatively small town, but I had this really broad musical DNA. And just to throw one more thing in. Paul Jackson, the bass player from the Headhunters, was living in Santa Cruz when I was a teenager. So I got into his band when I was about 16. He had a band called Shirley Out, and he was playing electric bass, piano, and singing. So I just was really fortunate to be in this environment that was fertile. Uh, to kind of marinate in that. Absolutely. And so all of that, and then, well, and then the, another aspect was that a jazz club opened when I was 12 years old, the Coomba Jazz Center. So every Monday night, you know, international artists were coming in. So when I was 12, the first concert I saw was Elvin Jones and the Jazz Machine. Wow. Then it was Sonny Fortune. Then it was McCoy Tyner. Then it was Art Blakey. Then it was Cedar Walton. And then it was, you know, Phil Woods. And it was just every Monday these people were coming to town. So it was just... I was just so fortunate to grow up in that environment. And these are classic jazz players who probably lived on the road, right? They were oh, doing 300 gigs a year, and no, that absolutely. was just one of them, right? Well, no, because it was they would play in San Francisco Tuesday through Sunday right. and then come down to Santa Cruz and play Monday night, which would usually be an off night, you know, right. so Santa Cuomba could afford them, you know, <laughs> and, and so on and so forth. So, yeah, and yeah, so I just, I was really exposed to that lifestyle as, as, as a young as a young teenager. And so we'll talk about why saxophone as the as the the instrument of choice in a sec. But what was it about jazz that appealed to you? Because I don't think that I was sophisticated a listener enough to really understand it. 
Mm. When I was a kid, there's also, I mean, there's many kinds of jazz as there are right. people that make it. Yeah. But but a lot of what I heard to me kind of sounded like the sound of mathematics. My dad listened to jazz and there was stuff yes. that I just couldn't wrap my head around as a kid. Now, maybe I just heard the wrong stuff. What was your well, gateway in? I t- the gateway for me was the opportunity for emotional expression right. that improvisation offered. And that was it. And I think, you know, the type of songs that my father played we're not the super complex music is math type stuff. It was more, you know, down the middle stuff. And, you know, they're grooving on a one chord vamp and the sax player, I remember hearing as a kid would play these wild, it's one chord and he's playing these wild, so squeaking and squawking (laughs) and the people are dancing. It was kind of the hippie culture was happening in Santa Cruz. So literally people were dancing on the sidewalk, on the mall. People are sitting in front drinking. I mean, it was a charismatic, exciting environment. And I think it was, it was that thing of like, you know, wow, that the opportunity for cathartic emotional expression that really drew me in. And, and you knew that even as a 12 year old. Yeah. Well, it was a feeling. It was yeah. probably not something I was, I was probably not. I need I'm, catharsis. Yeah, yeah. I was not, a, a, was, how'd you say? I'm not, I wasn't emotionally intelligent enough to put that into words, but it was a feeling thing. And I would say in a way, I still relate to music that way. It's a feeling to me. Like, yes, we could sit here and break it down. Okay. That's a D minor chord and that leading tone. I mean, I can do that, but that's not what captures my imagination and my heart about music. I'm speaking with Donnie McCaslin. Uh, the album is called Blow. Uh, you're on tour uh, currently. I think you're done with Canada, pretty much. You're going back into the U.S. now. Well, we got a few more Canadian Oh, do you? A few more. We're, uh, we're at, in Toronto at the Rex on uh, Thursday night. That is a fantastic um, place. Psyched to play there, as always. And then in Ottawa... Uh, on Friday and Montreal on Saturday. Oh, great. All, all great places to be. Uh, so you talk about, you know, breaking down music and we'll get to the other stuff in a sec, but I'm always fascinated to talk to musicians because for me, it isn't about playing the perfect D chord. You know, it's about playing what makes sense yes. and, and leaving space around it and, and letting it breathe a little bit and, and mistakes are great. Yes. Yeah. Yes. I, th- you know, and I agree with everything you're saying. And what I would add is for me, a real <clears throat> key component to all of this is fully giving yourself over to the moment and right. being in that moment and serving the music that feels most appropriate and most honest for that moment. And that can mean leaving space, letting go, playing a lot, turning up, turning down, you know, it can mean all of those things. But for me, um, and we could talk about this more and it relates to, um, a lot, everything I've done, but it also relates to Black Star. You know, mm-hmm. is just the thing of full immersion in the music and trying to have it be so, um, in in so so assimilated that you then have the freedom to do nothing or to do everything. And when we go see your band play, mm. if we see them in Toronto one night, Ottawa the next night, Vancouver the next night, the songs aren't going to sound the same from night to night, are they? Well, that's right. And that's, that's, there are elements that are the same, yeah. of course. And, and with this current project, you know, there are vocals and singing. And, and so the lyrics are the same, but, but the nature of what we do with improvising is there is so much communication and back and forth. And, you know, uh, the bass player will suggest something and I'll just veer in his direction. And, you know, there's a, a lot of that give and take. And I think that's some of the magic of this music. And that's something that's really compelling. And, and it's, we have this shared musical language and, and, and then we bounce these ideas around and, and it does go into unexpected different ways. And that's, 
that's why I do this. Yeah, and there's the moment, there has to be the moments on stage when you surprise yourself. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And what happened? What goes through your mind? Do you literally say, oh, that was cool, as you're playing, or is it just you're so wrapped in the moment that it, it, it just happens? No, I think, I think there, there, there are times, like we were playing, uh, we played in Winnipeg uh, yesterday, or the day before yesterday, and there was a moment where uh, Tim LaFave was playing bass, he played this really subby thing, and I just turned around and I just yelled, because you know, it, <laughs> it felt so good and so exciting. So no, I, I, I do feel those moments, and, and I live for those moments in a way as an artist, you know, where something surprising happens, and it elicits something different in my creative imagination than I would have thought was going to happen and sends me to a different direction of, you know, exploration or, or, or communication. And, and I love those moments because it feels like it connects to something inside of me that's greater than being a musician, just as a human being. Sometimes sounds, rhythmic things connect with me in a way that just feels uh, just so exciting. As a jazz player, is it all about the live performance and less about the recorded end of your output because I would imagine that it's just so electric up there. Whereas in a studio, you do it once and it's done and you're, you're it's on tape. Well, I would say that I in the studio I try to capture the um, emotional gravitas that can happen on stage. Right. I'm I'm aware of that and I want that to be present when I'm recording and in the recording process, especially the music I'm doing now, which is more you know progressive, and it's not it's harder to label. Mm-hmm. You know, is it is it jazz? Is it fusion? Is it rock? Is it art rock? I mean, there's there's a lot of different ways of approaching that. But I think for me, I do see the studio as a place where a lot of artistic creativity comes into play with production and you know post production and what we play. So so the studios it's a different environment, and I try to bring again that emotional energy from the stage. And I always want to have the live interaction that I feel on stage as much as we can capture that in the studio. But then also we have the um, ability to add this other element of Mm -hmm. post-production, especially in a more rock, art, rock, pop mindset that can be really uh, a whole another creative path in and of itself. On the new album, uh, songs like What About the Body and Club Kid, they they sound almost otherworldly to me. They sound... uh, like, I guess it was the sound of how you grew up. Maybe that's what it is. As you described it, seeing all those kinds of music uh, all seem to have funneled in through your sensibility and turned into these songs that are almost uh, unclassifiable to me. Well, well, thanks. And and um, I, I guess, you know, this record more than anyone I've ever been involved with has been was the most uncomfortable process in mm. terms of bringing it together because I knew that I wanted vocals at the center of this and prior to this record it had always been saxophone at the center saxophone playing the lead now it's vocals and the lyrics and what do the lyrics mean and who am I going to collaborate with yeah, yeah. who are going to be these songwriters and you know at certain moments along the way I remember feeling like very uncomfortable. I'm not sure how this is going to turn out, but I did reflect on something that that David had said to me one time when we were working. He said, you know, you're onto something when you feel uncomfortable as an artist. And when we come back, we'll continue the conversation with my guest, Donnie McCaslin. We're talking about his Canadian tour. We're talking about the album Blow and working with David Bowie. Stay with us. 
Welcome back. In studio, my guest is Donnie McCaslin. He is a, a, a saxophonist. I've been practicing saying that all day to make sure that I didn't stumble over it. Uh, and worked with David Bowie on Black Star. Has an album called Blow uh, that will bend your ears a little bit. It's a fantastic collection of music that, to my ear, sounds like even though I've listened to it probably 15 times in the last week or so, it sounds new every time I hear it. I hear something different in it every time. So check out Blow. You can see Donnie McCaslin and his band playing in Ottawa, uh, Vancouver. No, you've already played in Vancouver. So Ottawa, Montreal, and Toronto uh, in the next few days. Uh, check it out at the Rex. You're playing at a place called the Rex Hotel in Toronto. Uh, it is a classic. The Rex Hotel is an absolute classic and exactly the kind of place you should be playing. Awesome. Yeah, I love, I, it. I love it there. I love it there. So why saxophone? We never got to that. So you're you're a preteen. Yes. And why saxophone? Well, it was an impulsive decision. And I think it was, in retrospect, based on the fact that the, the man who played with my father's band that I observed as a child, Wesley Braxton, he was a hippie, wore tie-dye shirts, had a big <laughs> beard, would play these wild solos. It would whip the audience into a frenzy. I remember looking into the bell of his saxophone one time, and there was this pool of condensation with a <laughs> cigarette butt floating in the middle of it, which when you look back on it now, that's kind of gross. But as a kid, it, it was fascinating. Yeah. And I think all of that captured my imagination. So when that impulsive moment came, I said saxophone. I think that's why. That's And, and how long before you were playing with your father? Because you Not started off long. sitting on the stage yeah. and was sort of watching, yeah. but how long till you were playing? Well, so it was age 12 when, yeah. I, when, when that happened, and then I got into beginning orchestra, and then my father got me lessons with um, his current saxophone player at the time, Brad Hecht, and I would see him once a week. He would give me records to listen to. I was practicing a lot. And my father, my father got me up there far too soon. You know? <laughs> and, 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 you know, his, his style of parenting, you know, I, I really... It was, I appreciate because his he was always he'd always say to me you know you're my favorite saxophone player, <laughs> and I was struggling Richard you know when I was a kid you know I'd be playing I remember one time there was a famous piano player Bobby Enriquez sat in with my father's group and and I was playing and I played a blues solo I played in the wrong key the whole time it was a relative key yeah but it was the wrong key <laughs> and I you know and I remember just feeling you know very very I was very tough on myself afterwards and I was. You know, my tail between my legs and my father, you know, said, hey, you're my favorite saxophone player. And even though I knew that he was biased, it yeah. still felt good. And he never really said, do this or do that. He never pushed me. He would. He was just always affirming. And, and, I, and I appreciated that because he let me come to it on my own. And, 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 um, and we have a great, great relationship. He's 91, my father. Wow. He's got, I was just in Santa Cruz before this tour started. And uh, he's got a band called The Incredible Jazz Geezers. <laughs> And they're all to, in their 90s. You have to be 70 years old to be in the band, and you have at least 70, and you have to know 2,000 songs. Wow. So luckily, I get a hall pass. Yeah, you know when I go and I get to sit in with him, but it's always wonderful. And and he's has a deep passion for music that I still I was reflecting on it with my brother the other day. You know, just he has such a deep love for the Great American Songbook and for that era of music, and it's and it's beautiful. His life is oriented around yeah. that and basketball. And uh, anyway, so, Th so does your brother play? No, uh, my brother, uh, he played a little banjo and a little harmonica, but he was a career firefighter, uh, battalion chief in, in Santa Cruz and just retired recently. And, and he's got uh, a couple grandkids now and, and he's doing great, enjoying life. And what, at what point 
do you start to feel free enough on stage? Because at twelve, I can't imagine you're freestyling up there. You're, <laughs> yeah. You know, you're, you're. Are you reading music? Or are you? Oh yeah. And, and so you need yeah. to. I guess you need to learn all that, right? You need to learn every basic step along the way before you can really cut loose and, and let it let it go. Absolutely, and I think and I think when we talk about cutting loose, you're 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 when you cut loose, it's always based on the musical language that you have accrued to that moment. Yeah. Right, so you can cut loose on something very basic, but the more you develop, the more information you you internalize, the more language you learn, the more deeply you can express yourself. So it's just a journey. And so I was able to cut loose at some point, not when I was 12, but let's say 14, yeah. where, where I could feel like I was connected to something beyond myself, something that felt magical, something that was so intoxicating it gave me the inspiration to sit in the practice room for hours and hours and hours. It gave me the inspiration to wake up every morning for years and think like, first thought, when am I going to practice? What am I going to practice? Wow. You know, and, and that, that whole thing. And, and, you know, of course there's, there's days where you don't feel connected to that. Um, but when those moments happen and you feel like you're letting go, um, that's, that's what is so intoxicating about being an artist, I think, and being an improviser. And do you think that your love of John Coltrane also kind of fed into that? Because those records, man, I've never heard anything like that before. Absolutely. And you he know? was my first my first real hero was John Coltrane. And, and it was that sense of, it was so all-encompassing, you know? It felt so spiritual and so deep and so eloquent and so lyrical and so much content and so much virtuosity and so much rhythmic integrity all wrapped in together. And you're thinking, oh my gosh, this is so overwhelming, you know? <laughs> And you know, in a way, I can't even listen to him. I I can, but I don't listen to him much now because it, it's still so overwhelming to yeah. me. I, I love him so much. And but he's he was my role model. I remember reading a book about him as a teenager where it talked about how he would practice hours and hours and the, all, the total dedication. And and then the other thing too, just his his spiritual journey, and then him talking about wanting to just you know send this this feeling of love and through the room and those were things that I aspired to for years I still do you know he really set the bar for me and you say that you don't listen to him very often anymore just because it's it, it's that thing I, I I I'm a writer I spend most of my time writing and I don't read Truman Capote anymore because every sentence is absolutely perfect and it drives me crazy. Yeah. He's a great writer. He is a great writer. A Hidden Gardens? Yeah, man. They're all. They're, oh, they're, there's not a misplaced word yeah. in virtually anything that he wrote. It's, it's unbelievable. And Cold Blood is... Yeah. Anyway, yeah. yeah. Love him. And, and, and so, yeah. So I, I don't spend a lot of time reading that anymore because it just, for me, it, it kind of makes me crazy yeah. that how good it is. Yeah. Yeah. I'm in conversation uh, with Donnie McCaslin. The album is called Blow, available uh, wherever you buy albums, wherever you uh, buy music, and legally download. Legally. Uh, on tour, playing in Ottawa, playing in uh, Toronto, and playing in Montreal this week. Um, when we come back, we're going to talk about a, a project that is very near and dear to my heart, the last David Bowie album, Black Star. Uh, the story comes from you started working with David Bowie in 2014, played on a song, which eventually an iteration of it ended up on Black Star. Uh, but I want to find out how you met him and, and what 
he brought to your music? Because from what I've read, there was a, sort of an emotional shift after working with him. So when we come back, we continue the conversation with Donnie McCaslin. Stay with us. Welcome back, everybody. In studio, Donnie McCaslin joins me. Uh, the album is called Blow. Check it out wherever you buy fine music and legally download. Uh, also, see him in Toronto, see him in Ottawa, see him in Montreal this week. Uh, check your local listings for all that stuff, playing at the Rex Hotel in Toronto. Um, David Bowie. Uh, I can't overstate the influence that David Bowie has had on my life. From a young man who found that music, uh, who read everything there was to read about David Bowie, and I learned about Bertolt Brecht that way, and I learned about uh, fashion, and I learned about uh, other kinds of music that I would never have have been exposed to before, simply because I was a fan of David Bowie. I loved his ever-restless spirit that he, uh, from album to album, completely changed everything, and... Black Star, the album that you were the band leader on, for me is one of his greatest achievements. How did you meet him? And uh, feel free to be very detailed because this blows my mind. Oh, sure, sure. <laughs> well, I, I've been playing with Maria Schneider for many years. And um, at one point she said to me, hey, somebody from David Bowie's camp reached out to me about doing a collaboration. And I'm not sure whether I should take it on because I have, you know, we're we're preparing to record my, this is Maria talking to my, my, my new record. And, and, you know, and, and I said, yeah, but I think you should do it, you know, cause okay. he's, you know, he's just such an iconic artist and, and stuff. So, so we talked about it and then, um, then I, I heard, then, then a little while later, you know, she, we were on the phone. She said, you know, she had met with David, David was going to her apartment they're working on the song and, and the drummer from her band couldn't make it. And I said, hey, you know, Mark Juliana would be great, the guy in my group. And great, okay, you know. And then we, and then a little while later we talked and, and she said, you know, David was describing what he was hearing as the rhythmic underpinning for Sue. And I thought of you and I thought of your band. So I, I pulled out your record, uh, Casting for Gravity, and I played it for him. And I said, hey, you should do something with Donnie and his band. And I was kind of stunned and, you know, I was like, oh, man, that's awesome. And. Um, and then we went to talking about some other stuff and then we talked again and she said, yeah, I talked to David again and I told him that he should use you, do something with you. And Hey, you know, he said, uh, I said, we see that you're playing in town. We're going to come down and hear you. you know, I was like, okay, great. You know? So it was a gig at this little place called the 55 bar, which is similar to the Rex right. actually, a smaller version of the Rex. Greenwich village, right? Yeah, Greenwich yep. village. And, um, I think I told Mark that David was coming because, at this point, Mark knew about the playing on the Maria track. Right. I didn't tell Tim and Jason because I didn't want to, you know, s- r- r- you know, yeah, ruffle too many feathers exactly. or blow their minds. Yeah. So, yeah. So and we and so so they came and I, I I could I saw him at one point out of the corner of my eye, but we you know I just tried to stay involved in the music. And he's a sax player. And right. he's David Bowie. Yeah. So I was trying not to think about it, basically. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and so we played the gig, and they were gone. You know, I didn't meet him or anything. But about a week later, we had the first rehearsal slash workshop for the Maria David collaboration. And she just, it was just a few musicians there Mark uh, on drums, uh, Jay Anderson on bass, Ryan Keverly on trombone, myself. Maria was playing piano, David and Tony Visconti. Wow. Wow. So that's where I met David for the first time. And, 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 um, you know, I, I, 
I, from the moment he walked in the room, I, I, I felt something that, that was, that was consistent throughout the whole time that I, I was worked with him and knew him, which was, he was utterly focused from the moment he walked in the room, you know, he just sat down and was totally present and not like big personality. I need Mm -hmm. to talk. I need to like, no, it wasn't that at all. He was very self-contained and just present and you felt his presence and it was really warm, you know, and I, and I loved it. And so we started talking, you know, at, at certain point and, and, uh, I guess he, I, I th- he mentioned the gig and, and he asked me for my contact information. So he pulls out his book, you know, <laughs> I'm writing down my <laughs> cell phone number and my email address, which just wow. seems crazy to me, you know. And we talked and, and, and he was just, uh, you know, warm and, and, and just a total true gentleman. Well, he cast such a long shadow. Yeah. That I think it's probably very easy for people to be intimidated by working with him. So maybe that's a defense somehow of mm. a being warm, gentlemanly, mm. courtly almost, because mm. if not, people may just freeze up around right. him. Right. Um, so that was, that was, that was kind of our first meeting. And then, and then, um, he emailed me the next morning checking to see if this was my email address. I responded affirmatively. Then he sends me another email right away that is um, succinct, incredibly witty, <laughs> and the essence of it was saying, you know, it would be it would be a dream for me to record two or three songs with you in your band. Wow. And, you know, and he sent me his home demo version of Tis a Pity She Was a Whore. Wow. wow. So, you know, that was, that was probably the moment where I just stared at the computer, you know, and, you know, I looked at that three sentence email or whatever it yeah. was, and, and it took me about an hour and a half to respond <laughs> with two sentences, yeah. you know, but yeah. I was like, honey, can you come over and <laughs> get my wife involved? Can you, can, can you come look at this? This is cool. You know, you want them to be the right yeah, words. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. You know? Um, so, and, and that was how it started. And, and, um, um, I love the song. Yeah. Tis a pity she was a whore, you know? And in fact, the version he sent me, um, ended up, it was one that he made at home and he put that as the B side to the vinyl release of Sue or in a season of yeah. crime, the version he did with Maria. Yeah. And, um, anyway, so I had that and then we had the next rehearsal for Sue with Maria. So this time, uh, Ben Monder came in on guitar, Tony again, David, and Maria ran the show, and then you know we we were talking more and more, and then, and, you know, at some point I said, "Hey, you know, as many songs as you want to record, like, we're good to do this. You know, we're we're into it." So, over the course of the next few months, he sent me I would say six or seven songs, and um, I just tried to internalize them as uh, as much as I could. You know, every element, and it goes back to what we were talking about earlier. You know, I, I thought I'm not sure what's going to happen when we get in the studio. I've never worked with him, so let me just totally immerse myself in these songs so I feel free to go in any direction he wants to take it. And, and so the freedom for me would come, would be based on this immersion. And, um, that was the process. And then we got together. I, I, I distributed the songs to everybody in the band. We had one rehearsal without David and then we met in the studio and we started and it was, it was, um, it was really, um, uh, a remarkable experience because every day I would come home and feel like, wow, that was so great. I hope tomorrow goes well too. Cause you know, yeah. I had, I honestly, I felt the pressure of, you know, I'm 
kind of overseeing this and I'm, yeah. you know, and Dave's, you know, someone's looking to me, what do you think? And, you know, so I just, I just wanted everything to be so great. And, and I, mean, I could go, I could definitely go into more detail about how the days um, went. Well, we, we've just got a couple of minutes here. I will say one thing about all of that. So when you are preparing to do all these things, you emailed them and said, listen, I'm listening to your old catalog. I'm listening to Ziggy Stardust. I'm listening to Hunky Dory. I'm listening to all that. And he emailed you back and said, don't do that. Yes. That's yeah. not who I am anymore. Yeah. Yeah. Basically he's like, yeah, I mean, you know, that's old stuff. I'm into this, you know, other stuff now. And, and so I listened a little bit to, um, to heathen, Yeah, you know, but, but I also thought, and, and I also was thinking like, you know, he's not, because as I started to listen to that all that all that older stuff, it was having an effect on me a little bit, and I was thinking like, you know what, he doesn't, he's not hiring us to do that. He's hiring us to do what we do. Yeah. And I didn't lose sight of that. And his email was it was a, affirmed that notion. Like, no, I'm just going to keep doing what I do. I'm going to see what he's sending me. I'm going to filter it through the lens of my own musicianship based on my history, my musical language, and I'm going to go forward that way. Yeah, for me, what it suggests is that he's an artist that's always looking forward. Absolutely. Always uh, looking at the next thing and the next project, the next most interesting thing. And that is, for me, the restless spirit that always made David Bowie uh, so interesting. Yes. I'm in conversation with Donnie McCaslin. Uh, when we come back, we're going to continue talking about the making of the album Black Star uh, because the timing of the release. Uh, and everything that went around that was such a, a, a poignant week with the album coming out in less than 48 hours later, uh, David Bowie had passed away. I want to find out just if there was a sense that this was an elegy, uh, a, a eulogy of some sort. Uh, when we come back, we continue with Donnie McCaslin. Stay with us. Welcome back, everybody. In studio, Donnie McCaslin joins me. The album is called Blow. Uh, you can find it wherever you buy music, legally download. You can watch him at the Rex Hotel in Toronto live. You can see him in Ottawa. You can see him in Montreal this week. Uh, but uh, check out Blow. I'll tell you, I've been listening to this over and over and over again, and it's uh, it's transcendent, man. There's, there's music on here uh, that is going to stay with me for a very long time. Oh, thank you. Thank you. We've been talking about Black Star. And I know that you've talked about this a, a, a great deal, uh, but is there a, a sense that you had while you were working on this album that it was some kind of, of elegy for David Bowie? It was his last recorded work. Mm -hmm. He was not someone that recorded, he wasn't Jimi Hendrix that recorded every single musical idea that came out of his head, you know, and so we're still hearing new Jimi Hendrix music. He was very sort of precise about what he released and how he released it. Yeah. Uh, and after he passed away, there was commentary about the lyrical content and that it felt that, was there ever a sense of that? Well, it's, it's, um, it's, it's, it's a complex answer in a way because I, I, in some senses, when we were in, in the studio, I wasn't focusing so much on the lyrical content because I was more being a person that reacts more to the overall feeling of music. Right. That's more where I was. And I was like looking at him and he was singing and imagining my saxophone as sometimes like a pillow around his vocal. You know, I was yeah. thinking more in those terms and more reacting to the emotional energy that he was putting out in the studio. Definitely, though, when you look at the lyrics and, and, and in hindsight, when I look back, you know, you, th those themes are, are present. 
So I do, I do, I do see that side of it. And also though, I mean, I remember in my last conversation with him, we were talking about recording new music yeah. in January. You know, he was working on new, new songs and he, you know, said he wanted to record again as soon as possible. So, so I think both of those kind of coexist mm-hmm. to me. I mean, that there was the narrative of, of, of the themes that you hear in that record are real, but he was still moving forward. Always, always yeah. moving forward. The album that you made directly after working on Black Star uh, sounded different than the stuff that you had made pre-Black Star. And yes. I can only assume that there was some influence from David Bowie there. Oh, for sure. And and what did you learn by watching him? Well, I think it's it's some of the themes that you've brought up. It's his his um I would say his fearlessness, you know, and and his relentlessly pushing forward, pushing into the new, not being afraid of the new. You know, which are things that I had always um, striven for, but to see somebody who truly embodied that and to work so closely with him on Black Star and to have it go so well, for me was a transformative experience, but personally, but also, you know, artistically. Like it felt, and I guess I would put it to you this way, Richard, like it truly felt to me that anything was possible after doing that record. Right. And in a way before I felt that way, but it seemed more esoteric. <laughs> But then it's like, oh no! But I, we just did this record, and it was with David Bowie, and he and he was so happy with how it had turned out, and that was one of the, the enduring memories for me, and it's emotion an emotional one. Mm-hmm. But like, he was so happy when we would listen to the record, and we would arrive at the take. Or I remember the time when I first heard the record in its entirety, and with and was listening with him and you know and he was still so happy with it and i thought oh my gosh can you imagine the amount of times he's listened to this yeah. doing the vocal overdubs as he was so involved in the mix and all that stuff and he still felt that sense of like deep passion for the record and it that was so tremendously affirming to me as an artist that it just opened things up for me in a way that i couldn't have imagined and so beyond now well, you know, I, I look at that record now, I guess, as like some of the songs were absolutely inspired by specific Bowie songs that we worked on, you know, and then also some other people that I was into at that time and also the deeper level of interaction that the band got to as a result of doing Black Star. Right. Now, Blow, which comes a year and a half later, I had I was on, on the road a lot as a result of Black Star playing, and then I had more time to process these deeper, like, life lessons with David that came into play. And part of it is the, you know, the the blueprint of how do you put together this hybrid of something that's, you know, with deep poetic lyrical content surrounded by improvising, you know, and and how do you bring all these elements together? And in a way, Black Star was kind of a blueprint for that Mm -hmm. to me. And, and, and anyway, I, I felt like, I feel in a way like Blow is a more, more fully realized version of my, mindset and musical vision post post working with David. How exciting is it to still be learning? Oh, you know, man. after yes. playing on stage since yes. 12 years old and it's, then all of a sudden you have this sort of I don't know is it an epiphany but You're right. And you know what? That it's the best thing. And that's I think what sustains me sometimes when I'm on the road and I have children and I miss my wife, my kids and you know sometimes it's a grind on the road and all that stuff and and I think but man, but look 
I am so excited about this. I'm so excited about where this is going. It seems so interesting to me and so compelling. Like this is what I've worked for. This is the dream I've had about being an artist and musician. It's getting into some new territory like this that's very interesting. In working with David Bowie, uh, well into his 60s, your father is a musician at 91 uh, still. Uh, will you, I mean, can you ever imagine a point when you don't get up and, and play every day? Um, I, I, it's hard to imagine because it's such a big part of my of who I am. Yeah. And, and sometimes, you know, I put it down and we do family things and, and I love that so much. And, but after a certain amount of time, I, I feel that pull back to like, I, I need to get into the art, the creative yeah. musical, um, uh, scenery. So. Well, and it's a muscle too, I think, right? You know, you, you have to, you have to exercise it or right. it, it can, or it, it can get flabby. Yeah. yeah. It yeah. starts to atrophy yeah. and, 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 uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, do your kids play? Well, they, they do. They're not really studying, but I'm not pushing it. I'm taking my father's approach. <laughs> um, but they, they both are very um, into music and they respond to music and they both, they both have a lot of musical talent. Would you direct them to it? Like if they came to you and said, listen, I, I want to join a band and I want to go on the road, would you say, cool by me? Oh, yeah. I, I'm, I just want them to pursue things in life that are meaningful to them. Um, and I don't really have any preconceptions about what that should be. Yeah. I just want to provide them with the most um, a foundation of love and affirmation so that they feel the freedom uh, to choose what is most meaningful to them. I'm speaking with Donnie McCaslin. The album is called Blow. You can find it wherever you find uh, fine music, playing at the Rex Hotel in Toronto, playing in Ottawa, playing in Montreal. Um, life on the Road, how do you make sure that you don't slip into bad habits? How do you make sure that that things stay above boards for you? Um, I just try to focus on what I need to do to prepare myself for 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 the concerts. Yeah. You know, so that really involves rest, rest, exercise, diet. Those are the main things. You know, so I I I really just orient it all around that. You know, and. Now that I'm singing, you know, there's vocal warm-ups involved and, and uh, there's a certain amount of business stuff I need to do as yep. I'm, you know, dealing with that end of things, you know, um, the road managing. So, so, so all of that keeps me pretty busy. And, and, I, and I think I want this to be as powerful and, and, and the highest bar possible always. Ne you know, never letting that slip. So for me, I orient everything around that. So it's not too, it's not too hard. F it doesn't take a lot of discipline. I yeah. Think. Well, when you're looking to make a meaningful experience, yeah, you you take the steps necessary for yeah, it to be meaningful. Because I feel like this is it. You know, and and, and what in life, you know, we. We, we don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. Yeah. You know, anything can happen. You know, the plane could crash, a nuke, you know, environmental apocalypse could happen. You know, yeah. there's, unfortunately, yeah, there's yeah. a lot of things these days that could happen. But so I really, I guess what I'm trying to say is I really try to really live in the moment. And that's something that I saw, you know, David do. And I see a lot of artists that I really admire. It's just that total immersion in the moment and making it the very best and truthful and honest expression it can be. And then the chips are going to fall where they fall. My grandfather was a jazz trumpet player in New York City in the 30s, 40s, 50s, and 60s. And uh, the stories that I've heard 
from those days uh, where you played till whatever it was, one or two o'clock in the morning, and then the band would go back to someone's apartment. And, you know, in those days, the women would make food and right. all the guys would sit around and play and, and stuff. But it, it, it always struck me as being sort of impossibly glamorous. Maybe not a great lifestyle personally, but, yeah. but impossibly glamorous. No, I know. And it's, it's it was, a, you know, it, it, yeah, I know what you mean. And, and <laughs> it's, my life is just different now, you know, cause I, I have children and, yeah. and, and so it's, I, there was a period where I used to hang out more when I was younger, for sure. <laughs> you know, for sure. I mean, I could tell you stories and st- of, of stuff, but, but I think now, you know, it's just really focused on my family and, and, and the art. One last question about David Bowie. I've heard that he didn't do vocals more than once or twice. Mm. Was that your experience with him? Uh, essentially, yeah. yeah. Yeah, like he would retract with us, and then, you know, we would take take one or take, take two usually, and then let's say, and then he would maybe go out and add some vocal harmony, right. maybe replace a word here and there, and then that was it. Yeah. Yeah, so... so um, Again, it's in that moment. Right? Yeah, and a quick worker. And no, and here's, let me, t- you know, here's another thing. No vocal warm up that I heard. So let me, can, can I, do you have time for an anecdote? Yeah, let me sure, tell you an anecdote. of course. When we did Sue with Maria, that version, okay, that's about a nine minute tune, right? So we're in the studio, Maria's conducting the orchestra, David's in the booth with Tony for hours, like, you know, five hours, six hours till we get the whole piece put together, they right. splice. Okay. Then the next thing that's going to happen is... Myself and Ryan Carberry are going to overdub solos, you know, to to, and so they said, let's put up a scratch vocal so you can hear, right? So David goes. So David's been sitting in the control booth for six hours, comes out, they get a mic up. I I think you know a few words of checking the mic and the headphone level, and then he sings Sue, which is a I would say a tour de force vocal. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And then it's there, and it was, I was thinking, like, man, that was, that was pretty killing, you know? Then I went, I played some solos and stuff, and then I, and I split, and I, had, I went to a gig. The song comes out a few months later, and, you know, that, the version, his vocal version was the scratch demo. Wow. And I mean, maybe they replaced a couple things. Yeah. But according to what I, you know, from, from people that were, the, you know, that was just no warm-up, you know? And, and this tour de force, you know, with the full voice, I mean... That I, that for me that story really illustrates that uh, his process. David Bowie in the studio. Uh, Donnie, thanks so much for this. Oh, thank what you. What a pleasure, pleasure to speak to you. My Donnie pleasure. McCaslin has been my guest. Check out Blow wherever you buy fine music, and then also go see him at the Rex Hotel in Toronto, in Ottawa, and in Montreal too. Uh, my thanks to you for listening. My thanks to Andre on the board, and we'll talk again next week. <laughs>